So it's Jackie, and I am back with all new episodes on the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. And if you remember from my last podcast, I shared that I was supposed to be taking some time off playing and learning Spanish in Mexico, but it didn't quite turn out that way. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome back. Like I said, I didn't learn any Spanish, and here's why. Um, I have enrolled in seminary, again, I mean, third time is a charm, and I thought that my first intensive class started when I returned from Mexico, and so just before I left for San Miguel, I contacted the seminary to find out if I needed to do any reading before I arrived, (laughs) and they were very kind to me, and they let me know um, that all of that information was online. You know, it turns out since I've been in school back in 2009 that now everything is online. Um, and yeah, so there was all this homework I was supposed to be doing and this paper I was supposed to be writing, and I just cracked up because this is indicative of me. And I immediately texted my, fr- my kids because I thought, hey, they're going to enjoy laughing, not with me, but at me. My daughter said, hey, mom, don't tell anybody this. This is a little humiliating. I'm like, are you kidding? This is hilarious. I'm going to tell everyone And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you. So I didn't learn any Spanish because it turned out my intensive class um, was not at the end of my trip to Mexico. It was smack in the middle. So I restructured everything and spent um, some time in Chicago instead of San Miguel. Now, many of you have asked me, and it's a fair question, why on earth am I going back to school? I mean, after all, I already have two seminary degrees. It's a fair question, but here's what I didn't get with my first two degrees. Women. Yeah, women. You see, both times I was in seminary, the classes and the professors were almost 100% men, and I wasn't exactly included in their male world. And so over this last year, I read two books. One is called The Creation of the Feminist Consciousness, and the other is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And don't worry, I'll put them on the Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page so that you don't have to write that down. In those books, I read about a slew of Christian women that had large contributions to the Christian faith throughout history, throughout church history. And I was like, what? I mean, I have two degrees, and I hadn't heard of any of these women except Marcella. I mean, that is the name that I named my ministry, right? The Marcella Project. And I'll post a short video of who she is on the Facebook page so that you can know her too. But this is what happened. How can it be? I've had two degrees, no women. Um, So 
the other thing that these women talked about was, oh, one of the things that Beth Barr says in her book is that um, women in leadership have been forgotten because women's stories throughout history have been covered up, neglected, retold, or recast as less significant than they really are. And Gerda, who wrote the other book, she says this. Now, pay attention to this sentence because it actually is quite weighty. She says, Isaac Newton, in his pithy statement, said, if I had seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And in that statement, Newton expressed the mode by which the thought of man was shaped into major concepts of Western civilization. Men created history and benefited from the transmittal of knowledge from one generation to the other so that each great thinker could stand on the shoulders of the giants, thereby advancing thought over that of the previous generation with maximum efficiency. Goethe goes on to say that women were denied knowledge of their history and thus each woman has had to argue as though no woman before her had ever thought or written. Women had to use their energy to reinvent the wheel over and over again, generation after generation. When I read that, I was mad. I mean, Steve got an earful over dinner. And really what my anger was, was grief. Because it had hit me that I had spent the last 30 years of my life working diligently to birth a body of intellectual work that it turns out had already been done. Consider that. Consider you have given your life to something only to find out that it was already done and you knew nothing about it. And I'm not the only one. Many of you in different ways found yourself saying the same thing. You stumbled into this idea that women actually did learn in the church throughout history that they've had influence. And it's like this new discovery for you. And you tell somebody and it turns out it's not a new discovery. It's been there all along. People knew it. And so I wanted to learn about my Christian history. I wanted to learn about the women. See, for me, it was much like what I experienced last summer during the Black Lives Matters protests. Remember, a lot of us white women woke to the idea that what we were taught in elementary and junior high and high school was a bit lacking, and we felt cheated. Um, like, we had to start digging in and getting informed on our whole history about the inception of the United States. Well, that's how I felt about my faith history. Something had been hidden, and I suspected learning it would not only transform me, but inform my worldview. But these authors also said something else, and again, their words stirred deep loss within me. They said that another reason women have lagged behind in becoming scholars and theologians was because of not only the lack of education, but because societies of women weren't formed. Societies where uh, think, think like male fraternities, where there's connection and networking, where iron sharpens iron, where women's ideas are being sharpened by other women. And when I heard that, I reached out to Beth Barr and I said, can we meet? Yep, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> she said, well, I live in Waco and you live in Austin. I said, I can drive an hour and a half. And um, I'm about 10 or 15 years older than Beth. And we sat there and I asked her, are, are women scholars 
meeting now? Are they building off each other's intellectual bodies of work? Are they, are they iron sharpening iron? Is this like society starting to happen? And she said, yes, in a way for the first time, it's starting to happen. And I was thrilled. And I was also grieved. Because when I was coming up in the ranks, this wasn't the case. And so what these women, these younger women are now being able to enter into, I missed. And something in my soul has always ached for that. And so I left that lunch pumped because, hey, there are women like Beth Barr out there kicking butt. But I also was grieved. And when I got home, not that day, but shortly after, there popped up on my um, Google an advertisement for this new um, master's program in women's studies at Northern Seminary. And I thought, well, by golly, I want to learn, learn about women, and I want to be learning about women around with other smart, theologically-minded women. And so that is why I enrolled in seminary. It was so foreign to me, i got to tell you. When I got there, my friend and classmate, Amanda Clark, said to me, hey, after class, we're going to be getting together at so-and-so's house. And it turns out um, there are informal gatherings that happen at at, at at colleges and seminaries where people gather afterwards and like have these informal conversations about what they learned. Like who knew? You see, because in my doctoral program, I was the only woman. And so I wasn't invited to those informal gatherings. Um, In fact, what I would do is I would go to class all day long and then work all night long so that whatever was due later in the future after we left, I already had done before we left. And now for the first time, three degrees in, I am being invited to socialize in evenings with theological-minded women. And I was like, what? So that week in class, I learned about powerful women who shaped early Christianity. Women like Thecla, Perpetua, Marcella, and Melania the Elder. Yes, women you and I have never heard about. And I hung out with really smart women and men. There are men in our class, which I'm very grateful for. But did I mention smart, gifted women who love Jesus? And they were saying stuff. I had no idea what they were referencing. Like, I'm Googling, like, what on earth did that, does that mean? It was glorious for me. And it was one day, while we were having a break, that this woman named Serene came jumping up to me and said, I know who you are. I figured out who you are. That always makes me a bit nervous. She told me that she had, for some reason, I don't even know how, she had gotten a hold of my book called Lime Green, Reshaping the View of Women in the Church. And that was one of the breadcrumbs that Jesus used to get her to seminary. And I went on and asked her about her story, what it was like for her to grow up in a conservative evangelical home where women were allowed to do certain roles and not certain roles, right, and yet be called. And she started sharing a lot of the obstacles that she had to overcome, and I thought, you know, I have heard her story through the mouths of so many women. I mean, her story is really common among those of us who minister. Um, And when I say women who minister, I don't necessarily mean women who have titles and get paid for it because lots of women work for free and don't have the title and yet they are ministering. But her story was really common and I thought, you know, I bet most people don't know that this is what women have to go through to become ministers. And so I thought, why not tell you? Why not put it out there? And so what I want to invite you to do is to sit back for the rest of this podcast and listen to Serene share her story. 
Well, welcome, Serene. I'm glad you've taken this time to share your story with uh, me and our listeners. We're glad you're here. Thanks, Jackie. It's so great to be here with you. So as I mentioned to our listeners, I met you in class at Northern Seminary. And um, in our conversation, uh, you shared a little bit of your story, your trajectory towards seminary. And I would love for you to just kind of share with our audience um, where you grew up, basically, and, and the angst you had as a young girl about your faith in Christ and your vocation. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I grew up in the 1990s in an SBC church in South Carolina, and I had a strong faith from when I was pretty young, but um, I didn't really see women leading in ministry anywhere around me in my context. So that wasn't part of how I viewed my faith or, or um, being in the church. And my home life was pretty difficult. Um, and so there were seasons uh, where I was experiencing or seeing abuse in my home and experiencing poverty. And so in those early years, my faith was really, I think, what helped me get through those really difficult seasons. Um, and so there were times where we weren't connected in church at all, but my faith and a sense of, um, of God being with me is kind of a theme when I look back during those times in my life that was, was very much present. Um, when I was 14, I had this very strong sense that God was calling me into ministry, uh, but that was a really kind of confusing experience for me because, like I said, I didn't see examples of women in ministry. Um, but I had heard stories in church, like when we would have a particular um, giving weekend, for instance, of women that were missionaries that were serving um, on the mission field in another country. And so I kind of put the pieces together in my head and I thought, okay, well, this is clearly it. If God's calling me into ministry, it must be to uh, gain some sort of skill and go into the mission field in another country because in my context, in my church, in the U.S., I don't see that happening. Um, so that's pretty much everything that I uh, pursued from that point on through high school and heading into college um, academically or volunteer work that I was doing. It was all towards moving this mission forward of believing that I was called to go um, into missions in another country. And so I went to college and I majored in biology and minored in chemistry and minored in Bible and religion. And I was, you know, checking all the boxes and putting the pieces together. Um, and that's where I uh, started working towards med school with this idea that I was going to um, go into the mission field as a physician. That made sense to me. I had um, quite a few family members that were members of the medical community and I enjoyed science. I was good at it. And so to me, just being a linear thinker, I was like, okay, this makes sense. Um, I ended up meeting my husband in college. Um, no shock there. It was a Christian college. So that's what we do, right? <laughs> um, and I, I met my husband there. We, we shared passions for, you know, caring for people and, and reaching people that were far from God. And so we connected, um, even when we were friends, that was a connecting point for us. So we um, ended up getting married and straight out of college, we went into this a church plant in the city in North Carolina where we went to college. Um, and so 
we served there for about four years. And during that time, like we didn't live near a medical school, um, but I was still in the background, you know, working towards the mission. I was studying for the MCAT and um, I started working in a nonprofit um, medical clinic and I was, you know, still checking those boxes. And um, we ended up in 2015 moving to Nevada. My husband took a, a position as a worship pastor at a church in Nevada. And when we got there, I thought, um, this is it. There's a medical university here in Reno, which is where we were located. And so this is, this is it. This is my time. God has clearly now opened this door. Um, so I um, really amped up everything, my studying for the MCAT, and I got accepted to be a volunteer, like this medical clinic that they had there at the university. Um, but something just wasn't right. The doors weren't opening. And um was feeling really confused, to be honest, because I had spent quite a few years pursuing what I thought um, God had called me to. And around that time, I started working um, for our church as a volunteer coordinator. And it was around that time that I had an experience that when I look back was was a pivotal moment. I had a one-on-one conversation with my um, direct report, who was an executive pastor at the church. And he was encouraging me and kind of, you know, developing me and calling out leadership. And he used a word that I had never heard used towards me or any other woman. And he um, described what I was doing as pastoring. He was encouraging me that I was pastoring people in the ministries that I was working with as a volunteer coordinator. Um, And I don't know what your experience has been, Jackie, uh, but for me, when I heard that word, I felt kind of confused. (laughs) I was like, are you sure that that's? that's the word that you meant to use. Um, and that kind of, uh, I think triggered something in me that led me to, um, search for more and start asking some questions. Um, let me, let me ask you this so, question about your yeah. pastor at the time when he mm-hmm. used that word, cause you're right. It's a reverent word for those of us who are heading into vocation, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. pastor is an office in the church. It's also a spiritual gifting. And so like women aren't called pastors. In fact, often we have women who are serving, um, like a pastor in their church. They actually, their work is pastoral, but they aren't given that title. They'll be given the title like director or something like that, Mm -hmm. because we have this whole, like, Ooh, we can't call a woman a pastor. So it's kind of a big Mm -hmm. deal that he said that I have uh, Mm -hmm. often met with women and they'll be sharing with me in seminary and they'll be sharing with me what their you know next trajectory is. And often they'll start talking about counseling. And I can sometimes discern when they're talking to me about becoming a counselor that, that actually they have the gift of pastoring, but they can't mm. experience themselves that way because they've never seen it, right? We can't be what we can't see. And so they right. think that the only way that manifests itself is if they go into counseling. And so I'll say to them, so you mean what you want to do is hang a shingle and meet with somebody for one hour and then have nothing to do with them afterwards. And inevitably <laughs> someone who has the gift of pastoring will say, no, I mean, that sounds horrible because pastors mm. want to walk with people, right? So mm-hmm. this man, he says the word pastoring, um, did he, like, at that time, believe women could be pastors? You know, that's a great question. I think he was on his own journey. Um, if you had spoken to him maybe even a year before that conversation, I don't know that he would have used that word. Um, at that point in our church, women were not called pastors. Um, and so for him to use that, he was definitely speaking more to the gifting of pastoring and not necessarily a um, a job 
title or role in um, office in the church. But the spirit um, used but, it to nudge you. Yes. <laughs> and this is something exactly. I want the women out there to hear and men. The spirit will nudge you through things that people don't even intend, intend for it to be used for, right? Mm -hmm. He says the word exactly. pastoring. Yes, he has a certain way in which he means it, but the spirit says, yeah, I have something else for you. Anyway, okay, go yeah. ahead. Tell us the rest. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And a, and a really important point to call out. Um, and, you know, it was interesting when I met with him around that same time, I was already having some uh, conversations with God uh, where I was... Um, I had a lot of questions, you know, God, what are you doing in my life right now? I felt that I was being faithful. Um, and, uh, it seems like you are, um, just calling out my gifts and opening doors in this direction that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't line up with what I was taught and how I grew up and the, the door that feels more familiar and seems the more obvious one isn't opening. Um, and so I was having these conversations and I found that as I stepped more into ministry, I felt this yearning and that calling from high school um, being fulfilled. Mm. And so I was started asking God questions, looking for answers of, okay, what are you really asking me to do here? And it was through conversations that God used with um, pastors in my church or um, late night talks with my husband where um, I made um, what felt like a very painful decision to say, um, I am not going to continue devoting hours and hours of every week into volunteering and studying for the MCAT and pursuing the stream of medical school. And I'm going to lean into um, this, these gifts that God's calling out in me and um, this opportunity to minister and, and grow in that area. So um, I definitely think that I entered into a season of grief in some way, because even though those answers were coming and I was feeling this sense of joy and excitement and expectancy for what God was doing, I was also in some ways saying goodbye mm -hmm. <laughs> to a dream that I had been pursuing um, for, for a long time. So yeah. And I hope yeah. people can hear that too, because I think that um, this is part of allowing Jesus to nudge us, right? Is this, um, I thought we were going in this direction, which is interesting because he didn't say you're going to be a medical doctor on the mission field, right? But that's all we could see. So that's what we're going to yep. do. Um, but, you know, we have to let Jesus nudge us and, and set um, the direction of our path. And, and that at times can mean grief of letting go of what was and what we thought it was going to look like. I think often we have to let go of what we thought it was going to look like. So yeah, yeah exactly. It's part of the process, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. And it's, and it's giving up control and, um, and giving up, like you said, what I thought it was going to look like. We're really good at uh, painting these pictures in our head of, um, step one, step two, step three, it's all going to, you know, be this linear line. I have my life all planned out and very rarely uh, following Jesus looks like that. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things that I think happens to some women when they choose to, like, say yes to Jesus fully, like, oh, wait a minute, you're calling me into ministry, and you're calling me into some spaces that other people might not be comfortable with me being in. There's also a grief of knowing that you're going to lose some friendships, 
and that, mm-hmm. and you may even lose the faith community you're involved in, and you may have to switch to another faith community um, in order to exercise your giftings. And that can be yeah. devastating. There's a lot that, you know, we're moving past this quickly and we need to, because we can't have this be a really long, long, long podcast. But I want to point <laughs> out that there is a lot of grief that comes in women's lives when, um, because of the gendered expectations they had in one pathway, and then the Lord continues to open up their vision and they turn to another, another corner, there is loss in that. And there is grief in that. That's part of the process. So anyway, okay. Yeah. So you yeah. end up on staff, if I'm correct. Yes. I did. Yeah. So at that, during that season, I moved into um, a full-time role as the volunteer coordinator. And eventually I was I ended up serving on staff for about five years. And during that time, I was invited into a connections director role. And during that season, our elders were meeting and they made the decision um, to recognize women in the role of pastor. Um, they, they, the way that they uh, viewed it was they were still reserving the role of elders and lead pastor for men, but they were recognizing women as pastors. And so my uh, role eventually became a Connections pastor role, which was the first time um, our church had recognized a woman in a pastoral role. Um, And so so that was... Let me ask this. How did that impact you? You know, I too was one of the first women in my church to forge uh, some of this new ground. And, and, And as the first one out, it does have some personal impact. Some is like, whoa, like awe. I can't even believe I get to do this. And some of it's like, whoa, this is a little scary. And then I would love to know how did that um, terminology impact other women in your church? I know that wasn't something I even told you I was going to ask. Sorry. No, that's a great question. No, don't be sorry. Great question. Yeah. I um, would say for me personally, I felt a, a real sense of the weight of that um, and how I could um, be a part of us shepherding our church through that season of how we were going to explain this change and how um, we were going to help people in the church um, understand like how that decision had been made and what that meant, um, even just how we understood the role of a pastor. Um, So I felt a a real sense of weight in that, which, um, you know, there's a balance there because ultimately, like even just as I was saying a moment ago, giving up control, there's only so much we can control in that, in those sort of situations. But I wanted to be, um, uh, intentional and honor that season in our church. Um, and then how I saw other people responding, um, you know, there was a, I would say there was a range of conversations, but the fact that conversations happened, uh, was really, um, life-giving to me just to see that people wanted to understand. They were asking questions. And, um, there was one particular moment I remember where, um, a mom, um, brought her daughter over to me who, um, suddenly now saw herself and this heart that she had to minister. Um, now she was maybe get, being given the imagination to dream and to see what God might be calling her into. And that was just a really powerful conversation. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. I keep telling people we cannot be what we cannot see. And so it's yeah. so important to see women in top leadership in our faith communities. So Mm -hmm. you go on and you're serving and then you end up in seminary. How did you end up in seminary from there? Yeah, I mean, in my role, uh, part of what I was responsible for was helping connect 
people that were new to our church. And I was finding that in increasing numbers, the people that were coming through our doors were either um, people that had not grown up in the church or were from a different faith tradition or maybe had had really difficult experiences with the church. And this was their first step back. And I was having conversations where I was being asked a lot of theological questions. And so I made the decision to go back to seminary purely because I wanted to be better equipped to serve in that role. And um, I was actually planning to start a year later. So I started at Northern Seminary in 2019. I was planning to wait a year. And I just had this very uh, strong, compelling sense that God was saying this was the year that I needed to start. And so very uncharacteristically, I, within a week's time, got all of my application stuff together, applied, was accepted and buying books and like jumped straight into seminary by the seat of my pants. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so what I've found being in seminary, though, is that it's way less utilitarian than the reason I decided to go, although I've definitely grown and been equipped and I feel so much more confident in having those sort of conversations that were the reason I chose to go. I've also found just such a sense of community. And, um, you know, even as you and I have talked about your experience during the intensive, just looking around and seeing um, women and men and just that learning environment is an incredible experience. So you meet one particular friend there and that relationship then alters your location. Share a little yeah. bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in... Uh, 2020 for we have a week-long intensive every year which is how you and I met and so last year's intensive I um, in another uncharacteristic move uh, made a last-minute decision to not get a hotel room by myself and be in an Airbnb with a bunch of other students and that was where I met um, an, another student her name's Carrie and we um, were in that Airbnb together and built a relationship and um, just uh, became friends and just uh, supporting and encouraging one another in our different seasons of ministry. And she um, ended up inviting me to connect with a colleague of hers, which I in, um, met later that year. And that um, just led to some very clear things being um, made obvious to me about where God was leading our family. And I accepted a role um, to come here to where I live now in Illinois. Um, and I joined the staff of a church here in Downers Grove, um, just a few months ago in June of 2021. And so it's my understanding that your husband gave up his job and moved with you to, yeah. to Illinois for you to take a job in a church, correct? Yes. Yeah. I really like your husband. He's a good man. <laughs> we need I like good him too. Man in our corner. I love that. Okay, yeah. I want to um, just kind of close this out a little bit here with uh, you and I, we had such a privilege to learn about our amazing heritage, our history, our Christian history that I think a lot of us know nothing about, these women's stories that are part of shaping uh, Christianity from the inception. And to be honest, we don't know of them. And so you and I had a privilege that I think most women do not, and that is to go and learn about these women. Um, and so one of the things I wondered is, uh, if you had to pick one of these women, and it's a little hard to do that, but let's say you pick one and you say, I, I ask you, well, what did you glean from that woman in the early church, right? And, and how do you see her life story speaking to yours? 
Yeah. And really what I want you to do is just give us a little teaching here. Bring us a word. No, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You can't see it, but I'm cracking my knuckles now. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, so the time period that we've studied in our class was really those uh, first a couple of centuries of the early church. And um, I think we had this shared experience of hearing stories of women that we had never heard before. And one of those stories was of Blandina, who was a, a martyr and a slave girl in the Roman Empire. And we learned about her story from a Christian historian named Eusebius. And he wrote about her story from this letter that he received Um, in the early 300s. And what stuck out to me about her story was um, two particular points. One is that in this description of her, she is um, kind of defies the the vision or the picture people during that time period would have had of a woman who was a slave. Um, Women who were slaves were a way that the the Roman Empire kind of defined shame and defeat, even on the very coins that they used. There, um, at times, these coins had printed an image of an, uh, a slave girl, and it was sort of this image of people groups that had been conquered or, or defeated by the Roman Empire. And so for her to enter the arena in, in the story depicts her as um, just her strength and her bravery and her resilience in that moment was in some ways um, subverting what would have been expected of her. And I think there's something really powerful about that. And there's a point in the story where she is, um, and the story is, is very difficult to read. So if you are listening to this and you decide to go check out her story, just be prepared. It is very difficult. It's um, gory. It, it is very gory. Um there is a point when Blandina is suspended up on a stake in the arena, and the letter describes it as saying that those who were um, onlookers in that moment saw Christ in her and believed. And I think that that is so um, powerful to as women, um, as image bearers of God, to um, consider this woman that people saw Christ in her, And I think that there is something um, that we need to catch on to there because I don't know that we sometimes uh, grasp the power of being image bearers of Christ. Mm. Um, And so that would be one point. The other would be that she's described as mothering um, other martyrs. There's a young man that she mothers into martyrdom. You know, he's in this situation that he can't control. Um, Death is, is pending and she mothers him. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something really powerful there about the nature of being spiritual parents and um, as women, as spiritual mothers to um, go come alongside uh, sisters or brothers who are um, walking in difficult seasons and to say, come walk with me. Um, like I'm going to be with you in this moment and care for you. And uh, so that those were two things that really stood out to me from her story. That's powerful. I love that. And when I heard you say that, come walk with me, I'm going to be with you. I thought, well, that's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus yeah. is, right? It's so that's Christ-like. Right. There's such power in that. Um, I think yeah. I shared with you when my daughter worked uh, in immigration and she lived on the border of Guatemala and Mexico, one of the things she observed over and over again was this thing she called informal mothering. Just this, mm. you know, these women and boys and kids were 
were in disarray, were were distraught, and and many times removed from their their you know blood parents or siblings or whatever. But she would watch these women and men, but mostly women, because most of them were women traveling. But um, mm-hmm. do this kind of thing where they would kick in and informally mother everybody, you know. And she mm-hmm. she said it was fascinating to watch, and, and in my mind, that is very much a picture of who Jesus is. You know, he steps in when things are messy and we're alone or it's dangerous. Yeah. He says, I'll walk alongside you. I got you. Spiritual mothering. Jesus spiritually mothered. Yeah. That's a powerful statement. I love it. Okay. So for those of you listening, feel free to Google. I can't even say your name right now. (laughs) <laughs> Blandina. There we go. And again, it's gory. And um, I want to thank you, Serene, for sharing your story. And my hope is, um, for those of you who've been listening, that you will um, hear something in her story for yours, that there is like a nudge or a crumb um, about the next step that you're supposed to take. Not this big clarity or whatever, but just maybe a nudge. And then I also want to acknowledge for the women out there and men that have crossed some gender expectations with your parents or a partner or a faith community. I want you to recognize there's loss, as you probably know. And I want to encourage you that Jesus is not disappointed in you and that you can stand on the shoulders of these women, these early church women, as well as Serene and I's, right? Um, and and break through the glass ceiling that's being presented to you, Um I'm mindful of Paul's words where he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, that we are not here to please man. We are here to please God. And so if that's you out there, this woman who's having to break through, to, to be courageous, to go against the grain, if you will, to be obedient to Christ, not for the sake of just being rebellious ladies, but to be obedient to Christ, then I want to say to you, run your race, sister. We are here cheering you on. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.